I'm John. I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LaPrent and Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi, and you know me probably from hosting New England's Breakfast with the Beatles in Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire for, gee, the last 25, 30 years or so. And here we are with Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network, pod617.com, along with my fantastic Beatles co-host, Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston, Mr. David Gallant. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Chachi. I'm fine. I'll, I'll take uh, fantastic in the introduction. I'll take that whenever I can get it. Well, thank you very much. We're brought to you in part by Subaru of New England. They are huge Beatle fans, and that's why they sponsor our program. So thank you to everyone at Subaru of New England. We're very, very excited about today's guest on our show. We want to get right to it. We've been aware of this gentleman for many, many years, right, Professor? And, yes. Uh, yeah. And now his story is on film, the story of a young man from Canada, a very successful guy, in fact, but there was something missing, and I will let him speak to that, but it led him to India. And while in India, he gets the Dear John phone call from, from his girlfriend. And so suffering from a broken heart, he resorted to meditation. He thought that would help. And so there he is knocking on the ashram door. And this is where I introduce Emmy Award winning director. And gee, this man, if only I could have been in his shoes back in 1968, Mr. Paul Saltzman with his latest documentary, Meeting the Beatles in India. Hello, Paul. How are you, Chachi? Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. I am doing just fine. We're very excited to have you here. You know, stories like yours, so unique, doesn't happen often. And look where you are all these years later, celebrating that time you spent in the ashram. So I suppose we'll start when your heart is broken, you're traveling overseas, and uh, your girlfriend kind of dumps you. Can we start there? We can start there, except, hi, David. I didn't say hello, David. Oh, yeah, that's correct. Please <laughs> no, say hello. I, I, yeah, I, I didn't. I, that's fine. I mean, I, I kind of stop and, and am just sort of being contemplative when I hear about broken hearts. So it's all right. <laughs> you, you mean you've had at least one yourself? Well, I have this, uh, the same heart biologically, but somehow it has suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. <laughs> So hopefully, hopefully we'll change that today. <laughs> well, Paul, yeah, well, go yeah, well, we got a letter from my girlfriend, Tricia, and it said, Dear Paul, I've moved in with Henry, and I was devastated. I was shattered. I, it, I've had heartbreaks in my life, as most everyone has, but that was the worst ever before nor since. And somebody said, why don't you try meditation for the heartbreak? In fact, his name was Al Bragg, and I've been trying to find him for years, he's an American. There are a few Al Braggs on the internet, but not him, it seems. But he gave me an enormous gift. He said, I'm going to hear the Maharishi speak at New Delhi University tonight. Do you want to come? And I said, I'll try anything. And we went to New Delhi University and we squeezed up against the back wall. <clears throat> he got a little lost on the way there. So the place was jam packed when we arrived there. And this you know, odd little man, Maharishi, I'd never seen him before. I didn't know anything about him either. He came down the aisle wearing garlands around his neck and and the appropriate Indian clothing and followed by a number of people who were going to be also going to the ashram. And he gave a talk 
And I only remember one thing he said, but it was literally the thing I needed to hear. And I, I can tell you what it was word for word, because I remember it like that. He said, meditation takes you below and beneath your daily worries and concerns to a place of inner rejuvenation from which you come back renewed and refreshed. And I thought, that's what I need. And interestingly enough, the fates being what they are, I could have gone up to someone right there in the auditorium and said, how do I learn? And they would have pointed me to whatever office in Delhi, but I didn't. I just took a train to Rishikesh and I didn't know the train didn't stop at Rishikesh. So I saw the sign Rishikesh go by the window. It was really a rather you know, bittersweet moment. And I found my way to the ashram. I took a cab back from the next town and I got to the gate and the guard who didn't speak English called Raghavendra to the gate. He was kind of number three in the ashram, Raghavendra. And he turned out to be my angel. I said, I've come to learn meditation. And he said, I'm sorry, the ashram's closed because the Beatles and their wives are here. And, and I was a fan in two different ways. I saw them live in Toronto in 64, but even, even after that in 66, when Revolver came out and I heard Tomorrow Never Knows, and it, it really opened a, a door in my psyche, I remember exactly. So he said, sorry, you can't come in. And I said, can I wait? Actually, what I said was, you have to teach me. And I told him what was going on with me, but I couldn't get any. I said, can I wait? And he said, sure. And he pointed across the dirt path to a tent under the trees, an old army tent, and said, you're welcome to sleep there, and I'll send you our simple vegetarian meals. So he was my angel. And then eight days later, I got in. Wow. So let us let me just start with this before we move further. The documentary is called Meeting the Beatles in India. It's playing virtually all over the world. On October 9th, you'll be doing a very special presentation. But if you're listening to our podcast right now, just remember, it's thebeatlesinindia.com for all the information. I want to get the plug in there now and at the end of our program. And uh, a special presentation on John's 80th birthday. Do you believe it's been 40 years since he's passed away? It's still astounding. It's still an open wound for many people. But I would think more so for you than others, because you were, you know, for that time period in the ashram, you spent some close one-on-one time with John, George, Paul, but specifically John in this case. Yeah, well, the the short answer is no. It's hard to believe it's 40 years because I still think I'm 25 or something like that. You know, it's funny how we look out of our eyes and we 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 don't feel older. We may feel wiser, I hope. I hope wiser. Yeah, no, that was a huge shock, him getting killed. And, of course, such senseless violence, not just to him, but in our whole world. It's amazing, you know, I mean... All you need is love, and that's what they sang. And I think part of the reason they're still so big is the messages they put out that truly are very loving messages. And yes, I had the 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 pleasure of sitting with him, and and you know he was lovely and kind with me, and funny, and with a really incredible wry, teasing wit. So he was an amazing man. Chachi, I have a uh, uh, question just so Paul can frame this for our audience. How long did you, were you able to spend inside the ashram? A week. And I actually could have, I could have spent 
a lot longer. I could have stayed as long as I wanted to, but I went back to Toronto to see if my girlfriend and I could get back together. So I stayed a week with them. Even though she had left you for the, the villainous Henri. <laughs> uh, so, so you actually technically spent more time outside the gates than, than inside the gates. And I suppose it would have given you equal time. I maybe whatever meditative practice you were able to engage in while you were outside the gates, were you able to continue that pretty much once you got inside? Or obviously, did you find yourself distracted, not just by the company, but yes, by the company? Well, no, is the short answer. And the reason that happened was that within 30 seconds of sitting down with them, so I, I was let in after that eight-day wait outside. I was taught meditation, which took five minutes. Rug Vendor, who taught me, said, you're now welcome to spend your days in the ashram and take your meals with us. Those were his exact words. But we don't have any extra beds, so you'll still have to sleep in the tent. I said, great. And he left me alone to meditate. I did a 30-minute meditation. And, and I knew nothing about meditation, David. I, had, I knew nothing about mysticism, India meditation. I, I didn't it wasn't an area of interest, but it was a miracle. It was mind-blowing because a 30-minute meditation, I came out of the meditation and the agony of the heartbreak was gone. And what it was replaced with was bliss. And George later said to me that he got higher meditating than he ever did on drugs. And I had done drugs, you know, psychedelic drugs in the 60s. But I came out of the meditation and I was in a state of bliss. Could, can you describe or explain how you would explain the difference between bliss and enlightenment if you do see a distinction? Wow. Well, what a great question. My understanding of enlightenment has two parts to it. There's the classic enlightenment, the nirvana experience, the, the, the seeing God, the discovering the kingdom of heaven within, all of those things. And and I've, I have a couple of friends, they both happen to be doctors, one a female, one a male, who have had that grand awakening, as they call it, that Zen experience of, of all of reality su suddenly becoming accessible. And, you know, to, to, to try and deal with it in short form, when I asked Heidi, my friend, the doctor, who had had that experience in her 20s, I said, what was it like? She said, it was as if you had taken my nervous system and plugged it into a wall socket and every wire on the planet was part of my nervous system. You know, in the Zen experience, they talk about solving the koan and, and in that moment of enlightenment, being able to see through solid material. In other words, you're in a level of energy and a level of divine presence that is not the same as on the physical plane. You, you still would, would need sort of some type of interior equipment not to have that, I would think, overwhelm you and cause like a, a crisis of identity. And from what you're saying before getting in the ashram, was there even barely what you would say was a crash course in New Delhi? Or, I mean, is it like being thrown into the deep end of a pool to learn how to swim? You just, you just do it? Or there is some type of instruction, isn't there? Yeah, well, you know, there, first of all, there's many forms of meditation. And second of all, there's, there's many forms of meditation that use a mantra, a sound, a vibration, which TM uses. And it's a terrific method. It's a very efficient, simple method. 
yes, if you take the official TM courses, there's a period of instruction and a period of, of teaching and a period of review. In my situation, they just, Raghavendra just went straight forward. He talked to me about meditation for two minutes. He gave me a mantra. He said, why don't you try it and see how, let me know what it's like. And he uh, closed my eyes and I I started using the mantra probably for one minute. I opened my eyes and he said, what are you experiencing? I said, well, my knees are hurting because I had never in my life sat cross-legged on a floor. And I said, I'm being distracted by the dog barking outside. And he said, that's okay. When you find yourself distracted, don't wrestle with it. Just gently go back to your mantra. And that was the instruction. So that was that in terms of bliss and enlightenment. So to me, enlightenment is is two things. It's that big, huge, classic awakening to all of reality. You know, the seeing God, whatever the phrase is. And then there's the, the then there's the other use of the word enlightenment. You talk about people being enlightened, so it's a state of it's a state of um, wisdom. It doesn't need to be the big grand awakening. It's the state of wisdom. Oh, he's he's an enlightened teacher. He she's an enlightened you know CEO. Whatever it is, the state of bliss that I found myself in was that I went from racking heartache and loss to being in a state of completeness. I felt joy, I felt completeness. And in that moment, as I came out of the meditation room, I actually thought, as I, as I said to David Lynch in the film who asked me about it, I actually thought, well, if she's happier, if Trisha's happier with Henry, I'm glad she's with them. And that sort of in my mind goes along with that interesting phrase, if you love them, you will let them go. True love is not possessive. True love is not ownership. True love is not manipulation. True love is a state of being that is a very loving state of being. So I really meant that. That recalls very much what we heard from from John and George, at least in the in the film reports, after having first met the Maharishi and then hearing of Brian Epstein's death. That, that they would almost immediately get to use, if you will, <laughs> this uh, almost the meditation as prescription or those thoughts of thinking of Brian, that the happy thoughts will travel to him. He's in a different form of energy and uh, it's sort of a, a way of counseling, hate to use that very Western term, but counseling through the loss that you experienced as well. That uh, sort of makes me think of how they were almost prepared, if you will, for their, for their more deep initiation, if you will, right? Yeah, I think in a sense it's serendipity. If Brian is going to die, and so prematurely and so tragically, that they were with someone who had an overview of such things and and that they had just gotten mantras to use meditation for that inward rejuvenating connection, the timing was propitious. Mm -hmm. I I wonder if Brian deserved more feeling of pain from the boys rather than the Maharishi, I don't know how to say this, but like pull the rug from underneath him and not able f- to feel the, that pain of losing Brian. But the Maharishi gave him a way out where they didn't have to feel the pain. Maybe, I don't know what I'm trying to say is, but maybe they should have felt more pain with the loss of Brian. And for you, Paul, I mean, you reach this moment of bliss, free from the pain of being dumped by your girlfriend at the time, 
but yet you were willing to go back and leave after a week to go back and try to, you know, re, you know, get that relationship back on track. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there's a very interesting thing in, in what you're saying, Chachi, first of all, you know, there's a consensus reality, you know, and that is how does the world see things? And of course, there's no single consensus reality or there are just trends and groups and tribes and, and all of that. But the whole concept of no pain, no gain, which is what you're sort of not touching on directly, but it's part of that. The whole concept of no pain, no gain to me is one of the sickest phrases in all of reality because the way the subconscious works is it takes things literally. And I discovered that when I put the Beatles pictures away. So the concept, no pain, no gain, tells the subconscious, oh, well, if we're gonna gain, we need pain. And then what'll happen is you will create pain for yourself to gain. I remember when I was 17 in high school and that whole subject came up and I remember saying to a friend, well, you know, if you're, if you're in love with someone or even your relationship with your parents, you don't need to be beat up first to feel loving. You don't need to be punched around to feel someone's caring and love. Love is inherently exquisite. Love is inherently joyful. So I'm sure the Beatles were in tons of pain with the loss of Brian. I think what the Maharishi did was not about avoiding the pain. It was about saying, yes, but let's keep perspective. They are gone in the physical, but they're not gone in the on the level of spirit, soul, energy, and holding him in a place of love in your heart is is better than holding him in a place of agony. But I'm sure they went through the agony because we do. Well, I mean, there's there's a it is a different way of even of viewing grief and 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 the and the uses of, of grief. And I think a lot of the constructions of that are certainly culturally determined. And this was a chance not just for the Beatles and maybe the other Westerners in their entourage to experience how other cultures deal with with grief. It's very instructive, I think, of what Lenin said, you know, after <laughs> the Beatles breakup, where many people felt as though it was an injury, it was pain, <laughs> it was it was grief for their whole generation. And, and, you know, they may not physically had been a group anymore, but he said, you always have the records. <laughs> you can always go back and listen to the records. And if this is your way of, I hate to use the, the word transcendence, as a lot of folks have some disagreement about that, that, that human potential for transcendence and forgetting how rooted we are and forgetting things that, that need to be tended to in, in earthly ways. But it is a way that, that people can still carry them with them, you know, and inside them, you know, the, 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 the kingdom of the Beatles is within <laughs> in some ways. That's, I, I think you're right on. And I think that's beautiful. The kingdom of, of the Beatles is within. And not only that, I think not only do I like Lennon's comment about that, I like, I like in his last interview, I think it was his last interview in Playboy, and it was like just a couple of weeks, I think, before he got killed. And he said, if you want to know about the Beatles, listen to our music. Because they put into their music, not just their joy, which I happen to be fortunate enough to see in, the, in, in real, but they put into their music their own journeys, including their own internal journeys. So as you saw in my movie, and one of the great joys for me in making the film was being able to use graphic novel illustrations to show things that I didn't have any visuals for. So 
when I first heard Tomorrow Never Knows lying with Trisha on the front lawn and or on the side lawn of my house, as soon as the album came out and hearing the last the last track, Tomorrow Never Knows, and they're singing, turn off your mind and float downstream. It is not dying. It is not dying. And they talk about go towards the light. And and I remember the song ending. I remember that exact moment when it ended. I thought, what are they talking about? And I remember thinking, if it's something real, my parents and my teachers had never spoken to me about that. I was brought up to not believe in God. My parents were atheists, and I've since discovered different. By the way, I say God goddess as a rule because I hate to tell you, but God is not a guy. <laughs> Men usually think of God as a guy. No, he's not a guy. You know, God goddess, divine presence, universal love is masculine and feminine energy, both. Well, you 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 handled and rode through Tomorrow Never Knows when you first heard it much better than uh, Don Draper did in uh, Mad Men. As he ripped the needle <laughs> off of it and maybe was too overwhelmed by the uh, the possibilities of the infinite that the song is sort of suggesting, right? The Void is, it, it's one of the first times that I try to explain to students who would look at the term and accept the term void as as a negative, as negative space, negative potential. I have to say, well, no, it's it's actually, it, it's all potential, you know? It's it's the blank blank sheet of paper from which all novels arise, right? Sure, uh, yeah. sure. No, absolutely. One of the things I, I found really fantastic about your story is that, you know, because I've been in the presence of Paul many times, Ringo as well, and it's always, you know, he's, that's Ringo the Beatle, that's Paul the Beatle, I'm Chachi the DJ, but when you walk through the doors of the ashram, all that was stripped away. I mean, certainly George referenced the Beatles in your discussions, but they welcomed you just as a human being. And that's all they were too, just human beings trying to find an answer. And true. I found that fantastic. Yeah, no, true. It was, uh, I mean, meeting them in that context was a blessing, you know. And And I have to tell you that when I got to the ashram gates in a state of pain, it was not good news they were there. You know, in spite of their music having already changed my life, not only did we dance to their music in the early years, 63, 64, 65, we danced to their music at parties, but their songs, as mentioned, opened a door in my psyche and opened many doors in my psyche, as I think it did for many people. But when I found out they were there and I couldn't get in, it was not good news because I, you know, what was, what was more important than the Beatles was the fact that I was in bad shape and I needed something. Yeah. And the meditation turned out to be a, a miracle. Well, the, you know, everyone has a broken heart at some point in their life. And your story tells people, you know, it's not the end of the road. You know, there's, there's a way out. And, and you came out on the other side better. I mean, certainly with the experience and here we are today, all these years later, and you have a fantastic documentary out so uh, a lot of people and my my heart's been broken and you feel like it's the end of the world but it really isn't well and that was the beauty of of the conversation that i had with john that i could depict in the graphic novel style meaning i had some visual to put with the storytelling i mean there we are sitting there alone together the two of us and he's sitting across from me and he's writing music in his little notebook and he puts down his pen and he looks up and he says in a, in a way that was very warm, very warm. He said, 
so what are you doing here? Because no one was allowed in the ashram. By the way, you know, 20 to 30 people, press people, writers, photographers, camera people, arrived at the front gates every single day from all the major publications and minor publications because the Beatles were the sort of most famous people on the planet then. And, and what an ashram was, was relatively little known. Even what meditation was in 68 was not the common thing of today. The word, the word mindfulness, which is now big, wasn't even on the, on the vocabulary of, of sort of the kind of world. Yoga was not very prevalent in the West. Meditation was not very prevalent in the West. It was there. But the Beatles going to the ashram and the Beatles learning meditation became such huge news that those it really was, like I said in the film, a shift in 20th century consciousness. But I would see press people come up every day as I was waiting outside the gates and they would want to get interviews and, and um, sorry, they couldn't come in. So the Maharishi came out every day and gave a sort of press conference, answered questions, and they would get their, their sound bites and their images and they'd go away. But in terms of John and I sitting there, and he said, so what are you doing here? Because nobody was allowed in, I guess. And I, you know, I thought for a split second, do I just tell him about it? And I said, well, you know, meditation, and it was a miracle, and the heartbreak, and all of that. And then he said, in a very dear way, and, and, and sort of looking off in the distance, he said, ah, yes, love can be very hard on us sometimes, can't it, Paul? And I said, mm-hmm. And he looked off in the distance again, and then he looked back, and again, in a very kind way, he said, well, you know, Paul, the really great thing about love is you always get another chance. And in that moment, like I said in the film, he could not have been more kind to me. That, was, that gave me hope. Even though the heartbreak and agony was lifted, it doesn't mean I wasn't still wishing I could get back with my girlfriend and in that place of some hopelessness that you feel when you have a heartbreak. So he was beautiful with me. He was just wonderful. Professor? Well, I guess one direction I'd, I'd like to take is that while you were there for the, the brief amount of time that, that you were there, did you have a sense in any of the communal gatherings, how many of them you were present at, when perhaps John or maybe Paul, but maybe specifically John, felt as though he might have become a little bit disenchanted with what was going on at the ashram or the Maharishi himself or what he felt were the the, 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 the uses of uh, meditation, because I suppose at a certain point, one might feel, okay, I know the mechanism, I know the process that I think can work for me. And the beauty of this is I can do it anywhere. I don't need to be here to do it, or I don't need someone telling me how to do it, or someone I think is telling me how to do it because they're an entrepreneur building an empire. Did you get any sense of any one sort of disenchantment at any point? Not at all, because that whole part of it happened after I left. Yeah. So I didn't see any of that. Of course, I've read about it. And I did. Have did it a... surprise you when you when you read about it that Lenin had been so vocal in sort of his disenchantment? I suppose it surprised me only in the sense that when I was with them, they were extremely peaceful and happy and creative. They were they were tight as brothers. They really were. In fact, you could feel sitting with them, which I did every day, you could feel that tightness between the four of them. And you could sort of feel that the wives and Jane Asher, Paul's girlfriend, 
were close, but sort of one circle out from the inner circle. And I, when, I, when I say that, I immediately think of that wonderful, I say wonderful scene when they first came to New York, I think it was, and after they played Shea Stadium, and they went back to their hotel and they had the whole floor of uh, whatever hotel it was because for security reasons, they couldn't share the floor with other guests. And they, they went to a single bathroom and all together went into the bathroom, closed the door and lit whatever they were smoking, cigarettes or, or you know marijuana, I don't know. But they closed the door and they just huddled in a single bathroom. And what does that tell us? It tells us, you know, that that as a family, as a tight-knit band of brothers, they needed to get away from the screaming and the, the, the needy of everybody and just get back to their core as a group. So, you know, I think it's a beautiful story that before they all went to their bedrooms and whatever else they did that night, they retired to a bathroom, closed the door, and just needed the comfort of each other. And you could feel that at the ashram. So, you know, I... In that sense, was I surprised that Lenin said that only in the sense that I saw nothing of that. And all I knew was that when we sat around and talked about meditation and the food and the ashram and the Maharishi, everything was totally positive. With, without necessarily taking the interview to talk about sort of someone else who was there with you, but would you say that maybe your, your pleasure or maybe excitement in returning to the ashram was only exceeded by Mark Lewison's excitement about being there for the first time. <laughs> that, wasn't that beautiful, Mark <laughs> Lewison? I, I knew Mark because I'd met him at Beatles Week in, in Liverpool a few years before, but I didn't know him and we weren't friends. And I and, and during the filming and, and traveling up to the ashram and starting filming in Mumbai with him and then being in Delhi and filming in Delhi, we became, we became friends and, and I adore him. I think he's an amazing man and historian and his excitement was a thrill for me too. He is the guru. He is the Maharishi of Beatles historians as we know at this point. And there is no replacement. Even uh, when I had a, a, a friend I'd met at a, at a, a popular culture conference here, he was an instructor at Hope University in Liverpool, and I was there on, on another business from my university in uh, London, took train up to Liverpool. There is no replacement for walking in the footsteps, right? In the foot in the footpaths, whether it's Rishikesh or the streets of Liverpool or St. John's Wood in, in London. And you could really sense that from 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 Lewison in the in the film. That is that is it's you know, you had your you were Dante and you had your Virgil with you or the other way around, whichever it would be, you know, traveling there. So right. I thought that's really for, for those of, for those who are listening to this podcast, not that I would want them to pay particular attention to any segments of the, of the uh, film over others, but I think it's a great introduction to Lewis and if they don't know him. And, right. and one thing that I think that your film does is it provides people with now a text or a template to jump off, read Lewison's books to look at some of your other documentaries and the work that you've done in very, in very, in very non-Beatle areas in a way. And so I think that that in and of itself is, is how your, your film provides a service, if you will. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's, that's lovely. I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, Mark is, Mark is amazing. And Paul, now you've been taking people to India and doing tours. Do you take them to the ashram or where you were? Well, yes, and I, I'll tell you how that all happened because it's really very dear. So when I finally found the pictures 32 years later at the 
at the reminder of my beloved daughter. And, and that's one of the most fun things to tell in the film, too. Bless and our kids. Pardon? <laughs> Bless our kids. Bless our kids, totally. <laughs> and, and my daughter, Deviani, I love those scenes where we're sitting on Santa Monica Pier and, and, and the, the joy and love between us, but also the different perceptions between us, which, of course, is classic parent and child differences. They don't necessarily experience nor see how we do. In fact, they can't. They're different people and to be honored. In terms of bringing them out, in terms of tours to India, that was where we were at. So when I did my first book, and then I didn't even know Beatles Fests existed, but Mark Lewis, Mark Lapidus invited me to come to a Beatles Fest and talk and so on. And I had experiences at gallery shows, which I did you know, pretty much all over the world with the pictures. And I had the same experience about a hundred times. And it was very interesting. People would talk to me about the Beatles and so on and so forth. And at the end of a conversation, and again, I'd hear this about a hundred times over the years, the person would say the exact same sentence. I've always wanted to go to India, but it scares me. And I would say, why does it scare you? And the answer would usually be poverty or the food or the heat, whatever it was. And I would just share without trying to convince anybody about anything. I'd just share, well, I've been to India now 60 times. I've gotten ill twice from food. I've gotten ill more than twice from food in Toronto, right? Mm. And, and so on. And, and one time, and it was in Boston at a Beatles fest, a young man in his 20s came into my room where the pictures were all up and I was selling books and pictures and all the rest. And same thing happened at the end of a conversation. He says, I've always wanted to go to India, but it scares me. We had this talk. And at the end of which he said, and it was the first time it happened, he said, would you ever take anyone? And I said, what a nice idea. Wow. <laughs> and so it took me two years to find a travel agency. I mean, I know how to make trips happen. I'm a, I'm a producer and a director. I know how to do logistics. But I didn't want to. What I wanted to do was design the tour and have the joy of leading the tour in the sense of taking people to some of my favorite places in India. And yes, we end up for the last three days at the ashram and it's so peaceful and it's such a beautiful way to complete a journey that starts in the south of India and goes all the way up into the foothills of the Himalayas. Wow, isn't that fantastic? He's the Charles Rosne of India tours. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so the experience of making the film, how was that for you? I mean, here we are now in COVID. That kind of changes the whole business model of releasing a film. Right. And, you know, so how has that experience been? How are people welcoming the film are you getting positive reaction because it's a great oh, movie. well it's it's really it really is amazing and and it's a testament as much to the as much to the beatles as to the storytelling and so what happened when i finished the film and i was i still could make changes i did three test screenings here in toronto and in oakville two at the university of toronto and one out here where i live just west of toronto and in total, I, there were 750 people who saw the test screenings, of whom I knew maybe 50. Because, you know, yes, you can invite friends, but you want strangers to say, gee, that, that confused me, or gee, I got bored there, or gee, I'd like to see more of this. That's what a test screening is for, really. And what happened when the test screenings just blew me away, and it's continued. I got 
the most amazing responses, which is both testament to the love people feel for the Beatles and testament for the fact that the story of all this really resonates so deeply with people. The, one of the moments that I, and, and the Q&As after each screening, they didn't stop. People wanted to keep talking about their love of the Beatles and their experience of the Beatles and what was more of my experience. Literally, the Q&As just kept going. And if it wasn't, you know, we, we kind of kept them going for about an hour, but then it was like, you know, two and a half hours, three hours since people had arrived and it was time to say, hey. And, you know, each time I said, listen, why don't we wrap up? I'm sure some people want to go, but I'll be out in the lobby if you want to chat more. And then there would be a continuing conversation. Again, a testament to the joy and the love and the meaningfulness that the Beatles have played in people's lives, as much as to the recounting of my story of meeting them. Now, Professor, let me ask you, because uh, the professor's been teaching the Beatles course for well over to a 10, 15 years, and it's, it's always a freshman offered class. What do your students think of the whole Beatles in India period? Because, Paul, I mean, it was certainly their most prolific time. So I'll throw this out to you as well. Were you, did you realize they were writing all these songs at, at the time? So, Professor, how do students take that period of the Beatles? Are they interested in it? And, Paul, well, were, I, you, were you aware that they were writing all these songs? I, I think that when, when we get to that period, one of my regrets always, and it's, it's just part of the structure of university course offerings is, and I've been telling this ever since I, telling this to myself ever since I started the course, that really truthfully, I should do a, a part one and a part two. Uh, and it always seems to be a bit rushed toward the, the end. But it's an important moment because it's a very prolific, fertile period for them as they are exploring what's going on in the interior, right? I mean, this is, it's a great productive moment for them as they are finding themselves as individuals. They had great productive moments under the pressure of a, of a recording schedule where they were incredibly prolific as a group. And now they were able to slow down time. We always, I always talk to the students in terms of there's, there's chronological time and there's Beatle time, okay? And, and to have all of those albums come out in a certain crammed amount of time that when they took time away after finishing touring before Sgt. Pepper came out, seemed like eons, seemed like years and years and years. And then there was a period where there was just one album or one single released per year. And so that just that sense of slowing down accords well with them learning about meditation and, and, how, it, and how it served their needs musically and artistically and spiritually and we talk about how that stayed with some of them and not so much with maybe uh, some of the others but it, it is an important time like i mentioned before a way of managing the grief of brian's death and john really saying out loud what are we going to do now or this is it we're done for and this opportunity opens up <laughs> and so it's it's almost kind of like a rebirth really except it's a very different type of 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 beetle moment so you know it's a, it's a line of demarcation and a time to sort of you know, find themselves in the midst of then knowing that they had obligations to their art to still go back and share it with the world. So I think that some students with this, because they, and you know, what Paul said is kind of interesting. 
I, I don't know that they struggle with this sense of, of profound spirituality because they aren't spiritual. I think many of them are still maybe have had a religious upbringing or tutelage that is still fairly conventional. And they see this type of spirituality or movement as it has manifested itself outside of traditional meditation in yoga in exercise and everything else that maybe has been co-opted in not so many great ways about it. So they have trouble accessing these days, they have trouble accessing anything at all that is about reflection, that is about truly unplugging, you know, it, not in just a, a casual way of take a break from your screen this week, but truly unplugging and thinking about something for the sake of thinking about something that is very, very difficult for them to uh, wrap their minds around, but absolutely necessary if they're going to understand anything about the life of the mind or the heart or the soul. So it's a fascinating time, but it's a very difficult moment for them to understand in some ways. And to get over that frustration, well, we get to listen to the music. <laughs> so mm. that's, that's sort of where, where they're at at that point. It, it's a great moment because there are no easy answers, because it's frustrating, because at that moment, it is important for them to go through the pain of not having easy answers to something. And I think that is a good no pain, no gain of, of the, the, the mental st strenuousness of it. I think that's, that's okay pain as far as I'm concerned. Mm. And Paul, were you privy to them writing all these songs? Were you aware of that or they do it privately? Um, I was only aware of, of some of it. First of all, I was able or by serendipity, by happenstance, to sit with them when they were working on Obudi Obuda. <laughs> and that, again, the being able to use graphic novel illustration along with my photos to tell that story was a joy, just mm -hmm. a pleasure. And the I knew they were sitting on their rooftops playing their guitars, but I didn't go. Uh, I probably could have, but I didn't. And it wasn't... Uh, it's interesting. It wasn't about, oh, I better not bother the Beatles. I mean, honest to God, within 30 seconds of sitting down with them, as we talked about, the Beatles were gone. I didn't even think literally of asking for a photo with them. And we were buddies for a week. I could have had pictures and autographs, blah, blah, blah. And I, it's not that I thought, oh, I better not ask. I simply didn't think of it. I only took out my camera twice because I didn't think of doing it more than that. You know, it wasn't you know, I've been asked a question a few times, well, did you know it was a historic time? No, I was in the middle of it. I wasn't standing outside it. And I think the reason the pictures are as intimate as they are, and I didn't take many, I took very few pictures, but I think the reason they're as intimate as they are is, one, they were in a very relaxed state, very different than, than what they'd been going through for years. And two, they could, as Mark Lewison used the word sus, they could suss out that I didn't want anything from them, and I didn't. And like I said in the film, you know, when you're rich and famous, there's a there's a positive and a negative. And one of the negatives is that it's difficult if everyone wants something from you. How do you know who your friends are, right? Right. right. So they could feel that I didn't want anything from them because I didn't want anything from them. I went to to take a big pill for a heartbreak, and I found it, and that was marvelous and a miracle. And then I hung out with these lovely people. You know, Professor, it goes back to the story of the Beatles. Everything was calm in the eye of the hurricane. You know, <laughs> everything outside the hurricane, they, they uh, you know, when I spoke to, you know, Cynthia and Patty, it was, 
they didn't realize all that was going on in the outside. So you were in a peaceful eye of the hurricane, Paul. And until it, it, life happens and they each became their own hurricane. And when that is, and then when that's in the one room smoking up, then it, it can be, can be a bit much. But as, as Paul was saying that the strength that they needed from each other, that, that it took a while, even in that pressure cooker for them to fully become those four individuals that we see in on the white album, really from the photographs to the songs and, and everything else that it was amazing that they were able to live the productive lives that they did. A lot of my students are, you know, they understand the sort of, you know, tragic self-destructive images of their, of their pop culture heroes or the ones of a previous generation or even Elvis through Michael Jackson, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, whatever you want to put in. So I say, isn't that amazing that it took a, a crazed madman and cancer to actually take two of the Beatles out of this world. Not the fame, not the riches, not all the adulation that, you know, they, they stayed as, as long as they did because of, of the, the strength that they had, you know, that, that they only knew what they were um, going through. And mm -hmm. so it's, it, it is kind of a neat story to, to talk about that. Just that, it's a great for students to understand the power of really close friendship and, and, and of the group that we really don't go through all of this alone, you know, even with the dictates of, of meditation, that it's not meant to be completely a solitary activity, but only in as it connects you to know that there's something larger out there. Nicely said. Yes. He's, you should be a professor. <laughs> yeah, or a spiritual leader. I tell my my old catechism nun teachers wouldn't wouldn't agree. I, I left that long ago, but that's <laughs> that's a different story. <laughs> well, Paul, before we do wrap up, we don't want to keep you too long. I know you're very very busy. If I give you some names, would you share some thoughts? People that were in the ashram with you, was Mal Evans there? Yes, yes. Talk about Mal for a moment. Oh, dear teddy bear of a guy, very dear. After I met them and hang out, hung out with them for the first time, the only thing, the only time I ever thought of them as a group again was as, as after we all just split for whatever we were doing, and I was sitting alone with Mal, and I said, "Are they always this nice?" And he said, "Pretty much, but not always." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's different if you're an employee, maybe. But but Mal was with them from the you know just about from the beginning. Was Donovan there? Donovan was there. And he was, what was he like? He was very dear. I mean, quiet, modest, gentle. He, he gave me a quote for my limited edition book, and I won't be able to remember it all, but he gave me a brilliant quote about how my picture showed that, that they as a group in their, in their pantaloons, was his phrase, and their Indian clothes were, were there for the same reason I was, which was to find out who who they were she he said you know we were there to find out who we were on a and i add on a new and deeper level which is which is what i added in the film i met donovan many years later at a beatles fest and we just i hadn't seen him in 30 years and we just sat around in his hotel room at the end of the night and from 11 to 2 in the morning we just sat and talked about the ashram and he picked up his guitar and played and then he put it down and we kept talking he's a very wonderful man wow and and also since you brought up the the private performance by 
uh, Donovan. I love you. George is my favorite Beatle, and I only got to interview him once. But just to the voice, his voice is so different from the other three Beatles, I thought. And just talking to him was just, you know, it was just an amazing experience. But George took you into a meditation room and, and played, his, you, you showed some interest in the sitar, and he grabbed onto that. So can you just tell us some of that experience? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, you know, again, we were all sitting at the table out by the cliff, and everyone got up to leave for whatever reason, and except George and I, and I was... I was working on a cup of chai and so was he and 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 I I sort of said to him and this was the only shop talk that I was around and I happened to start it I said I love the way you brought the sitar into Norwegian wood and into Beatles music it's the only time in a week with them that that I heard anybody speak about shop talk really and he just lit up and started telling me with passion and excitement and joy about finding a sitar on the set of help and picking it up and plunking it, hearing a record by Ravi Shankar, then becoming a student of Ravi Shankar's. And he's after, you know, maybe five, 10 minutes of just going on about his love of the sitar and how it all came to him. He said, I was just going to go practice. Do you want to come? And I said, great. I didn't even think of getting my camera again for the third time in this lovely conversation with the two of you guys. It was a, one of the joys was I could tell this story with graphic novel illustration because one of the most important stories in the film for me is what happened next, which was we go to the meditation room and it's tiny, might be maybe eight by 10 feet, just a white futon on the floor. And we're both wearing those wonderful, comfortable Indian clothes, the kurta pajama, white clothes. And we sit on a couple of cushions. So we're about, you know, our knees are maybe less than a foot apart because the room's small and he picks up the sitar and he starts to play and I just closed my eyes and you know I I love sitar music I don't like frenetic sitar music but I love other sitar music and he just played and I just drifted on the sounds and I honestly don't know whether he played for 10 or 15 minutes or 30 or 45 minutes because time shifted you know how that can happen you know, we have days that seem to last forever and we have days that go by in a blink of an eye. Time is malleable. And as I heard the sitar finishing, my eyes are closed and I, I hear, you know, I don't hear a replacing note and the note is fading, fading, fading. And I slowly open my eyes and I'm stoned. I'm in a state of bliss from the music, from the energy in the room. And I could see the energy in the room, which has only happened very rarely in my life. And then we had this magnificent conversation. I wish I'd written it down when I left the room, but I only remember two things from the conversation. One was he said, I get higher meditating than I ever did on drugs. And I knew what he meant because it had just happened a couple of days before when I went from the agony to the bliss in a 30 minute meditation. And the other thing he said was life changing for me. And he he was, and you know this because you've met him and interviewed him, he was a man of genuine genuine humility you know there there's that thought of humility being oh no no shucks no 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 when you're complimented oh no no it, that's not humility humility is actually recognizing your size in the universe we're wonderful beings but we're still just tiny little pieces of a very big universe so he was just remarkably down to earth and humble and he said, and these are his exact words, he said, like we're the Beatles after all, aren't we? We have all the money you could ever dream of. We have all the fame you could ever wish for. 
but it isn't love, it isn't health, it isn't peace inside, is it? And that was life-changing for me. I never forgot those words. And whenever I give a talk or whenever I'm you know, presenting or in the books and so on, I always make sure to tell that story because he was giving me a gift worth a gazillion dollars because we know that you can be a billionaire and be an alcoholic. We know you can be a billionaire and be a wife beater or a husband beater or a kids beater, you know, that fame and fortune have great potential positive value, but, you know, it isn't love, it isn't health, it isn't peace inside. So thank you, George, you know, thank you. Thank you, George. Yeah, that's, he was fantastic. Just a very short story where I, I interviewed him once uh, over the phone and he seemed to have enjoyed it. And then I got a message from the record company saying that George enjoyed the conversation. And if you would like an autographed album to send one along, and so I gave it to the record rep. He sent it to George and I got it back and I have it right over here on my wall. He autographed help for me and he was just such a kind man. And I'll tell you, Paul and, and, and Ringo, I've interviewed them many times, just really sweet guys. Yeah. 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 You know, all four of them. I mean, as I said to Mark Lewis and on the train, right. And it just came out. We, he was talking about, we were talking about their creativity on the train ride as we're riding up to the ashram and Mark has never been there. And I remember I said in the, as we're going through the train station, I said, how long have you wanted to visit the ashram? He said, Oh, about 50 years, meaning <laughs> since he was five years old. And, you know, and, and we were talking about them and, and Mark said in a beautiful way, he said they weren't mes message givers and people who think they were sending messages are barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. They were just writing for themselves, but what they wrote was so authentic and had such a ring for other people. So, you know, and I, I say, yeah, they were four amazingly creative guys. It's crazy in one group, four of those wow. guys in one group. It's, you know, there is divine presence in the universe and they were a divine coming together, those four people. Yeah. Well, Professor, before we wrap up, any final thoughts, any final questions for Paul? Oh, just uh, just a silly one, you know, at the, the end of the semester to sort of prove the almost the impossibility of writing this short little journal entry. I'll ask students, you know, to explain after they've gotten to know them, you know, who's your favorite Beatle and why, you know, the end why is 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 important. But so so I'd have to ask you, you know, or how Gretzky, who's the greatest hockey player of all time? Who's your favorite? <laughs> Because it, when they were interviewed, it was funny because how would say Gretzky, Gretzky says or, and or says how. So, really? Well, yeah. I, I still play hockey, although I haven't played for almost a year because of the pandemic. And, mm. and I'm looking forward to starting to play again. I play non-contact hockey because I'm not, that's how I am. But to me, my favorite player is, is of those three, my favorite player is Crosby. And oh, who isn't one of those three? Okay. Right. But, but the reason for that is simple. I think when I watch Crosby play, he exudes poetry, a poetry of motion. There's something about him that is different. And, and what I know from interviews, and I've been trying to get an interview with him for five years. So if anyone knows him, please, I can't get past his agent. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book very slowly called The Joy of Hockey. Ah. And I want to interview him. And so going back to that, because of his, because of his uh, joy, what appears to be his joy of hockey as he plays, is a, it's a mastery. As far as 
the others, Gretzky, Orr, and Howe. I mean, Gretzky, I think, would be next in line for me. And this is just how you relate to the personality. And Orr and Howe, both phenomenal. I mean, you know, these, these are all gods of hockey. So you, you, you pay no attention to the fact that you, you are today a guest on the Boston Podcast Network and uh, <laughs> you're willing to, so, although Orr, Orr talks about, he, he, does, he does talk about Crosby in, in some of the same terms in his own way that, that you do. So I'm glad that, that you actually put a foursome up there, just like uh, the Beatles. I often tell students, you know, I would defer to Sean Lennon saying, well, they're like the wheels of a car. You need all four to have the car go or Epstein's famous you know, heart, soul, mind, and heart, four-part, heart, soul, flesh and blood, right, for Ringo, that, that that's important. So I just wanted to pick your brain about that. That's a great question. Hopefully, I, you can get, hopefully you can get on the ice sometime soon, you know. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've been able to interview some of the greats, you know, Jean Beliveau and Frank Mahavalich, and one of the most fun interviews was with Scotty Bowman, hmm. who, of course, is, uh, what, the most the most uh, Stanley Cup rings as a coach in history. Sure. And I said to him, what is your favorite moment in hockey? And here's what he said. He said, the night we won the Stanley Cup and I had twins with my wife. <laughs> wow. There you go. <laughs> well, welcome to the Joy of Hockey podcast with uh, Paul Sautzman <laughs> and David Gallant. You guys should do a podcast called The Joy of Hockey. But before we go, Paul, did you ever see the suitcase full of cans of beans? I didn't see it. I knew it was there because I was told about it uh, on Ringo's departure. But no, I never did see it. But what, what was said to Dennis O'Dell, apparently, who took Ringo's room and arrived the day I left, Ringo said to look behind the door to Dennis O'Dell because that's where the suitcase was. Eggs and beans. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Paul Saltzman, what a joyful movie. Fantastic photographs. Just beautiful color photographs and 30 it took you 32 years for your daughter to say where are those pictures i think that's, <laughs> that's interesting right. so god bless her the movie is called meeting the beatles in india the professor and i thoroughly recommend it is playing virtually look for the beatles and in go to thebeatlesinindia.com they're going to do a special presentation on the evening of october 9th which would have been john lennon's 80th birthday Paul, we only wish you the best on your film. And gee, it's such an honor to speak to you. You're legendary in Beatles circles for that. Thank you very much. Thank and, you for your uh, time. Please, yes, thank you for your time. And please stay safe and good luck in all that you do, my friend. It's very thank much appreciated. You and thank you, David. And thank you, Chachi. It was really lovely talking to you both. We, we agree. We just love talking to you. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi with Professor David Gallant and a very special guest today, Mr. Paul Salsman. So please, everybody, go and see Meeting the Beatles in India. You will love it. We're brought to you by Subaru of New England. Have a great day, everybody. Professor, have a great day. Mr. Salsman, be well. Thank we'll you. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. <laughs>